Father, we realize tonight how jealous you are for us, Lord. Tonight you are very jealous. You've said that we shall be yours. That means we can't be our own and we can't be the world's tonight because we're yours and you're jealous for us. Father, so tonight we submit ourselves to you, Father. We say, here is nothing. Take the nothing that we are, Father, and turn it into everything. Father, we want to say tonight that we are so privileged, Lord, to have a Father like you, a Father who loves us, a Father who cares for us, a Father who is concerned about us in every detail of our lives. I praise you because you are such a loving Father to us. Father, that we might be able to give you the love of our hearts back, that we might be able to pour ourselves out to you in love. Father, that's our great desire. And I pray, Father, tonight that you should know, because you can hear, the love that we have for you. Father, we commit this evening to you. We submit ourselves. We give up. And we allow your Holy Spirit to take full control. Father, may we know the anointing of God upon us tonight as we come to study your word. Thank you for the precious field that your word is, Father. Thank you because it is so rich, so bountiful. Father, thank you every page shimmers with joy and happiness, Lord, because our Father wrote that, and that's his mind. And it tells us of his righteousness, his righteous statutes, his laws, and of his love towards us. Father, bless us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight we continue on the subject of judgments. You remember that last time I began on the subject of grace before judgment, and it's rather interesting that in this, this course, which is actually called Judgments, I'm staying true to the principle of grace before judgments by doing several uh, talks on judgment preceded by grace. So I'm beginning by grace and then going on to judgment. That's the principle that uh, we are talking about. Now, last time we saw two things. First of all, we saw that all judgment has been given into the hands of the Lord Jesus. And I'm sure if I asked you, I could, uh, you could tell me probably the two reasons. The first was that Jesus might have equal honor with his Father, that the people of this world should give him complete equal honor with the Father. The second was that the Lord Jesus himself is the only mediator that can possibly exist between man and God. Being God and man, he can represent both sides. Now, this week I've been so thrilled by the whole thought of the fact that the Lord Jesus is the complete mediator for me. He is the one that is not ashamed of me. He is the one that isn't ashamed to fully identify himself with every person in this room and every believer. It doesn't matter how low you've got, he is prepared to fully identify himself. Sometimes we're not. Sometimes we see someone who's in a mess and we're afraid to touch them. But Jesus never was like that and never has been like it. He is the one who fully identified himself. Could we begin by seeing a passage which actually beautifully shows the fact that the Lord Jesus identifies himself with us. In Revelation 7 and verse 17. In Revelation 7 and verse 17. And it says this, For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them. 
And if you remember the talk that I gave on authority some time ago, you'll know that the word feed there is the word shepherd. The lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall shepherd them. Now, I think that's beautiful. I think that's beautiful. It's only God. It's the mastermind of God that's devised this. He hasn't picked a great man, a man who understands the countryside, who understands agriculture to become the shepherd. He's picked the lamb to become the shepherd of the, the flock. What is a lamb? It's the weakest member. Of all the flock, there is the weakest member. It's the one that's so busy feeding it doesn't notice that the, other, the rest of the flock has moved off. And it looks up and it suddenly feels, I'm all alone. There's no one to help me. I'm all alone. It's the one that feels bogged down when it reaches a particular part of the field. Oh, it was all right for the sheep. They could get through. But this poor lamb, newly born, finds that its legs are going in fairly deep and really it's dragging a bit. There's the lamb that in the middle of the night wakes up and is afraid because it all looks so dark and all he hears is the singing of the shepherd to keep him company and the bleating of his mother. What is the lamb? The lamb is the one that's lost its mother, rushes up, and it's the wrong sheep, and the sheep pushes it away, and it doesn't know where to turn. It's Jesus. And Jesus, the lamb of God, has become the shepherd of the sheep. Oh, isn't that glorious? He is the one that has been prepared to fully identify himself with every single member of the flock. Therefore, you as a Christian, there's no danger to you because the Lamb of God has become your shepherd. He's the one that understands every path you're taking because he's been there before. He's the one that has been through every trial, every, every tribulation, every fear in the night. And he's the one that God the Father has made to be shepherd over the flock. Your shepherd. The one who is personally in charge of you. Praise God. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 4, we've got it summed up in different words. Hebrews chapter 4. What a shepherd. Praise God. What a shepherd. That's why at the end of our lives we'll be able to say, He has never forsaken me. He has never left me. He has never let me down. He's always understood. He's always been there to issue the word of comfort just when I've needed it most. Praise God. The wonderful Lamb of God who has become shepherd of the flock. And in Hebrews Chapter 4 and verse 14 to 16, we've got it summed up like this. Jesus, our mediator, this is. Seeing then that we have a great high priest which is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted or tested like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How marvellous. There was the Lord Jesus tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. There wasn't one time when he said, well, Father, you've let me down. He knew his Father better than that. There wasn't one time when he was faithless because he knew that his father understood everything that he was going through. Therefore, because he's been through it, it doesn't matter what you're going through or what you're feeling, he understands. All you have to do is turn. Turn to him. 
Come boldly, it says. Come boldly. Don't be afraid he's going to cast you out. Don't be afraid he's going to say, oh, really, you're just being silly. He understands exactly. Let us therefore, verse 16, come boldly unto the throne of grace. What for? Two things, that we may obtain mercy. And sometimes when sin has bogged us down, and sometimes when we're in that state, we say, Lord, I can't come anymore. It's too big. He understands. He understands. And his arms held out. He's saying, come on, come on. I understand exactly what you've been through. Come and get mercy from me. And second, to find grace to help in time of need. And every Christian will have time of need and time of trouble and time of anguish and time of testing. That's the very time you need the shepherd of the sheep to come running up and you've got to go with boldness before him and say, Lord, I know you understand. You've been. Look at this in verse 16. The throne of grace. The throne of grace. The throne of grace. Praise God. That is such a contradiction to me, if I may branch off at this point. Such a contradiction. The throne of grace. What's a throne? A throne represents authority. It represents might. It represents rulership. It represents force behind its actions, the throne of grace. The idea really is summed up by Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a great army leader. And one day he decided that he was going to attack Alexandria. And he didn't like Alexandria for some reason. And he amassed his whole army in a line against Alexandria just ahead. And Alexandria was shivering in its shoes at the sight of this great army. But there happened to be one man called Populus Linnaeus. And this man happened to come from Rome. And this man, completely unarmed, walked out of Alexandria, and he stood with his arms folded in front of Antiochus Epiphanes, with all the army in front of him. He picked up a stick, and he drew a line in the sand. He said, thus far, and no further, for Antiochus Epiphanes, you put one foot over that line, and you are not at war with Alexandria, you are at war with Rome. And Antiochus Epiphanes knew what that meant. He knew that this man was speaking in the place of Caesar, and that if he dared put one foot over, the throne of all Rome would come along and he would be annihilated by the armies of Rome. Now that's throne. And you know, he turned round on his heel immediately. He's a wise man, and he went back to Palestine where he committed terrible things. But there's the throne. And what's grace? Grace is unmerited, undeserved favor. Grace is the love of God which doesn't force anyone or anything. Grace is that which woos, that which comes along and appeals and doesn't coerce, that which helps but never tries to push you down. And what have we got together? The throne of grace. The throne of grace. And almost, almost a contradiction. But it tells us two marvellous things. One, grace is enthroned. That the love of God has power behind it. Praise his wonderful name. Not the unhappy love that sees its children suffering and can't do anything about it. That would be grace by itself. Weak, perhaps. No, not God's, not God's grace. That's enthroned. It's got power behind it. Oh, how my heart has gone out to King Zedekiah. He was king of Judah, the last king of Judah, and he was captured, 
and in front of his very eyes he saw all of his children being put to death and he was powerless to do anything about it. That's not the love of God. The love of God's enthroned. Hallelujah. The love of God's powerful. The love of God's got teeth. And that means when he sees his children suffering, when he sees his children almost on the point of death, he's powerful, he's effective, he's forceful in coming to meet their need. Oh, praise his wonderful name. Hallelujah. The love of God enthroned. But what else does it mean? The second marvelous lesson from those two words just close together in the scripture. What does it mean? It means that the authority of God has got a beating heart underneath. Praise God. Not a tyranny, not a fascist regime that's going to kick everyone down, no. But a father's lovely heart beating for his children so that when he disciplines, when he corrects, it's because you need it. It's because it's for your good, not because he wants to do it. Praise God. Oh, I could go on and on about those two words just together. The throne of grace. Praise God. And isn't that what we're talking about? Okay, we've seen Jesus has the judgment. What was the second thing we learnt last week? That whenever you get the righteous judgment of God, you always get the grace of God first. The throne, indeed, of grace, indeed. Amen. Hallelujah. And last time we saw just the principle. I think I used Adam and I used Lot to demonstrate this marvellous principle of grace before judgment always. Hallelujah. And today I'm going on to another example of this principle because it's so important for each one of us. And I'm going to deal with the flood this time. The flood. Noah's flood. Now, I hope no one in this room is mistaken in the idea that the flood was just actually a local uh, deluge of water. You know, it was just a hundred square miles that got deluged because actually the flood, Noah's flood, represents to us the worst possible judgment that the earth has yet seen from, from God. Because make no mistake, God was prepared to annihilate and obliterate every living thing on the surface of this earth. He was going to deluge the whole earth with water, and if there was no one righteous, every person would have died. That's the judgment of God. There has never been judgment on that scale in the whole of history. There has never been a time when the wrath of God was so revealed than at Noah's flood. By the way, there will be a time when it's revealed a bit more, and that time is coming in the future. But as far as we are concerned in the Bible, Noah's flood is the greatest example of God's wrath that we have. But Romans 5.20 says something very important. Where sin abounds, there does grace abound even more. And so tonight, instead of looking at the wrath of God being poured out, I'm actually going to see where's the grace Okay, it was the greatest judgment, therefore it must have been the most sinful time. Therefore, it must have had the revelation of the greatest grace of any event in the Old Testament. And tonight I'm dealing with the flood from the aspect of God's grace in it all. God's grace. Let's have a look at the story first of all. Genesis chapter 6. <coughs> Genesis chapter 6. <clears throat> now, tonight I'm not dealing with why the flood was sent. I think I've dealt with that when I did the angelic conflict some uh, time ago. So I'm going to take passages from Genesis 6 and not deal with every verse on this. I've dealt with the other verses elsewhere. I will deal with them again, by the way. Let's begin at verse 5. 
This describes the condition of the earth at the time of Noah. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created, both from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. Verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and upright in his generation, and Noah walked with God. And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had, had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Verse 14, Make thee an ark of gopher wood. And if we go to verse 3 now, the same chapter, Genesis 6 and verse 3, this is the warning that God gave. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he is also flesh, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. And at this point, God is saying, You people living on the earth, I give you one hundred and twenty years to repent. During that time, you've got to decide, is it God or is it your own way? And at the end of it, I'm going to destroy the earth unless you repent. I've heard, by the way, this uh, phrase used out of context, the phrase, my spirit shall not always strive with man. I've heard it used very wrongly in ev evangelistic ser uh, sermons, when sometimes people have come in and the preacher said, God's spirit will not, o not always strive for you. That's what the Bible says. And if you leave this place without having given your heart to the Lord, there'll never be another opportunity. And it's way off base. Because the Spirit of God so loves that he never stops seeking and searching those whom he may save. And if a man is on his deathbed, having rejected God all his life, the Holy Spirit's there with him. And he's saying, believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Thou shalt be saved. Believe, believe, believe. Never does the Holy Spirit give up until man has breathed his final breath. But of course, we don't know what's going to happen. We could leave this room tonight and find that our days have actually been called up in heaven and the time for our death is arrived. But never is it true to say that the Spirit of God stops striving with man. This is a warning which was only given at the flood. You've got 120 years. You've got 120 years. You must repent or else I will destroy. Now there's the judgment of God. Verse 4 uh, and verse 1 and 2 deal with the reasons that the flood came and I'm not dealing with those tonight. Okay, there's the problem. Now where is the grace in all this? And I can see three major areas of grace. Three major areas of grace. And I'm going to deal with them each in turn. Number one, the building of the ark. Number one, the building of the ark. <clears throat> you must remember that in the Old Testament, most of the people couldn't read. This was true right up to the time of Jesus and beyond. And God was so gracious to them, because instead of just having a man at the front printing leaflets and sending them out, 
as Nebuchadnezzar did, by the way, when he was saved and he was so thrilled with the Lord, he printed a tract and he sent it right out throughout the kingdom, but most of them couldn't read. God, however, being a good teacher, he knew that most people couldn't read. And he always had a man who preached the message and gave an example of what he was talking about. It happens time and time again in Scripture. Actually, the tabernacle itself is a picture of that, that you had the priest teaching about the Lord, but the tabernacle demonstrated it. For example, when the candlestick was there, that was Christ, light of the world. And in the darkness, there was this light shining, enlightening everything. And of course, as the tabernacle was dismantled, they would see the candlestick and the priest would say, that's the Messiah when he comes. He's going to lighten every single person. And so the Lord always in the Old Testament gave examples to demonstrate what he was doing. And the ark's one, what teachers would today call audio-visual aids. And the ark was just such a picture of what was God was going to do. Let's have a look at a few others, by the way. Keep your finger in Genesis. Let's turn to Zechariah, first of all. Zechariah, chapter 11. I think we'll uh, deal with four. There are so many in the Old Testament. Zechariah, chapter 11. And we'll take a few verses. I won't teach this passage today. It's a super passage, actually. But Zechariah was teaching. He was telling the people something. Actually, it was a warning again. <clears throat> and in Zechariah chapter 11, and I'm going to take verse 7 first of all. And this is Zechariah speaking. He says, I took unto me two staves, two long pieces of wood, two of them. The one I called beauty, perhaps he wrote the name on the side, and the other I called bands. Now, I'm not going to teach on this, but they represented something very important to Judah at the time. Verse 10. And I took my staff, called beauty, and I broke it asunder, that I may break my coven covenant, which I've made with all the people. Now, there was one, and it may meant something. And so he got the rod, and in front of all the people, he broke it in half. And they knew what it meant. There was a practical demonstration. Uh, further down, verse 14, Then I broke asunder mine other staff, even bands, that I may break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. And he was, he's going to break any alliance between the two, and it's represented by the staff. And he breaks it in half and puts it aside. Now there's an example. Do you see? There was teaching, but there was also a visual representation of what he was teaching. Let's have a look at another. Ezekiel. Ezekiel did a lot of these. Ezekiel chapter 5. Ezekiel 5, and beginning verse 1. Well, we'll just read the first two. It actually goes on. And thou, son of man, this is the Lord speaking, son of man is the term for a prophet in the Old Testament. Son of man. So he's talking to Ezekiel as a prophet. And thou, son of man, take thee a sharp knife, take thee a barber's razor. That's how sharp it's got to be. Cause it to pass upon thy head and upon thy beard. He's got to shave all his hair off from the top of his head and from his beard. And he's got to save it, put it to one side. He's got to do this in front of all the people, by the way. He's going to demonstrate something, you see. Then what's he got to do? Then take the balances to weigh and divide the hair. Thou shalt burn with fire a third part in the midst of the city. Now, having done this, he then walks to the center of the city with this crowd following him, saying, well, Ezekiel's just shaved all his hair off. And they're amused by this, but God's 
It's perfect for God. He's going to demonstrate something. Take a third of the hair and set fire to it in the midst of the city. That's the first thing you've got to do. Next, when the days of the... Uh, sorry, I'll read that again, verse 2. Thou shalt burn with fire a third part of the midst, in the midst of the city when the days of the siege are fulfilled. And thou shalt take a third part and smite it about with a knife. Take the third part and chop it up with a knife. And a third part thou shalt scatter in the wind, and I will draw out a sword after them. Now what did it represent? It represented the people in the city. And God was saying, a third are going to die by fire within the city. Another third are going to be cut about and are going to die by the sword. And another third are going to be scattered to the winds. Now there was a warning. What was God's message behind it? Repent or else it's going to happen. And if you read the rest of the chapter, that's what Ezekiel goes on to explain. You see, the object lesson first, then the explanation coming directly after it. Let's have a look at two in Jeremiah. <clears throat> two in Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah 28 and verse 10. Now here Jeremiah has been walking around with a yoke on his back. A harness, probably the type that is like this, a pole right across the shoulders. And God's told him to do it. And he's walking around with this wooden harness on all around the city. Now, that collected crowds. It was a ready-made congregation wherever he went. What's Jeremiah doing? And Jeremiah was faithful. He preached the message. And what was he saying? He's saying, you people think you're free. You're going to be shackled to Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to come. He's going to take the city. And here in... Uh, Jeremiah 28, we have a false prophet called Hananiah. Then Hananiah, the false prophet, took the yoke from off the prophet Jeremiah's neck and he broke it. What was he saying? He's saying, it's rubbish. It's not going to happen. And Hananiah spake in the presence of all the people, saying, thus saith the Lord. And by the way, it's not true. This is a false, a lying prophet. Even so will I break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all nations within the space of two full years. And the prophet Jeremiah went his way. You see, this Hananiah was saying, it's not true. Nebuchadnezzar will be defeated within two years. Thus saith the Lord. And all the people, of course, believed him. They always go after the good news. It wasn't true. And what did Jeremiah say? Then the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah the prophet. After that, Hananiah the prophet had broken the yoke from off the neck of the prophet Jeremiah, saying, Go and tell Hananiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Thou hast broken the yokes of wood, but thou shalt make for them yokes of iron. You won't be able to break those, Hananiah. That's what the Lord's saying. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the Lord God of Israel, I have put a yoke of iron upon the neck of all these nations, that they may serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they shall serve him. And I have given him the beasts of the field also. Then said the prophet Jeremiah unto Hananiah the prophet, Hear now, Hananiah, the Lord hath not sent thee, but thou makest this people to trust in a lie. Therefore thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will cast thee from off the face of the earth this year, Thou shalt die, because thou hast taught rebellion against the Lord. Verse 17. So Hananiah the prophet died the same year in the seventh month. And the word of the Lord came to pass. Last example. Jeremiah again, chapter 51. Jeremiah again, and chapter 51. <coughs> Beginning verse 60. Beginning verse 60. So Jeremiah wrote in a book, in a scroll that is, all the evil that should come upon Babylon 
even all these words that are written against Babylon. And Jeremiah said unto Sariah, Sariah is called the quiet prince earlier on, Sariah, when thou comest to Babylon and shalt see and shalt read all these words, then shalt thou say, O Lord, thou hast spoken against this place to cut it off, that none shall remain in it, neither man nor beast, but that it shall be desolate forever. And it shall be, when thou hast made an end of the reading of this scroll, that thou shalt bind a stone to it, and cast it into the middle of the Euphrates. And thou shalt say, Thus shall Babylon sink, and shall not rise from the evil that I will bring upon her, and they shall be weary. Thus far are the words of Jeremiah. So here he is, Sarai is told to go into the centre, read what the scroll said, which is the whole of Jeremiah chapter 51, wrap it a stone up in the scroll and hurl it into the middle of the Euphrates, which ran right through Babylon. And as they watch it go bubbling down, never to be seen again, Sarai would say, that's exactly what's going to happen to this city. Well, there's the object lesson. And now we have Noah... In the middle of a dry piece of land, he suddenly starts building a ship. Now remember, at the time of Noah, not one drop of rain had fallen on the earth. It did not rain at all before the flood. Rain came only after the flood. What did happen then? How did the earth get its water? Well, in Genesis chapter 2, we see the picture. Genesis chapter 2... <clears throat> And verse 6, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 6. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And every morning when they got up, a mist covered the whole of the surface of the earth. And enough, rain, enough water came from that that they didn't need any rain at all. And suddenly, in the middle of a piece of land, a man starts building a boat, a ship. Not just a ship, a huge ship, about half the size of the old Queen Mary, to be exact. 450 feet long, imagine that. 75 foot wide and 45 feet tall, a four-story house tall. And he starts building. It's going to take him 120 years, in the middle of a dry place that had never had any rain. You can imagine what happened. I imagine that people came from miles around to see the spectacle of this man in the middle of a dry area suddenly building a ship. By the way, the ship had a cubic capacity of 1,400,000 cubic feet and its displacement was 14,000 tons. It's not the type of ship that you build and then put on the top of your roof rack on the car and take down to the sea to see if it's going to float. Once it was built, it was staying in situ. And for 120 years, probably, the ship was being built. Can you imagine the crowds that came from all over the place? They just flocked into the area to see this weird man with his weird family who were building a ship. And you imagine the taunts. Hey, Noah, what are you going to use that for then? How are you going to get it to the sea, Noah? What's all this about? And they mocked, and they mocked, and they mocked. But what is it? It's grace. Because every single day, Noah had a new congregation. They'd come to see the boat, but they were going to get more than they came for. They were going to hear about the grace of God and about the coming judgment. And this spectacle of a man in the middle of a dry area building a ship 
caused such hilarity. I can imagine that trips were arranged to go and see this great spectacle. <laughs> As it gradually developed, it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And you can imagine him actually painting the pitch on the side with great care. Here it was, 45 feet tall. They must have caused, it must have caused such a stir, a large circle of people all the way around. And there was Noah and his family. And every taunt, they gave an answer. They gave an answer. Now that's grace. That's grace. It's God moving to bring a message to a people who don't want to hear the message. Now God had every right with this people to say, you don't want to hear, I'm not going to tell you then. He didn't. He caused one man to be a fool for Christ. Praise God. I believe God's looking for such people nowadays. There are so many of us, aren't there, who are quite content as long as no one thinks that we're slightly odd. As long as they think that we're not doing anything strange. As long as they can still respect us. But God may tell you to build an ark in the middle of Bognor. He may tell you to build a strange fellowship some other place. And people will laugh and scorn. But they'll come along to see. Praise God. And then they'll receive the message. Now that's grace. And the ark standing there black with all its beauty must have caused many doubts must have spoken volumes, especially when he was so careful waterproofing it all. Do you think it's true? Do you think it's true? Is that really going to happen? There's the question. That's the first. Grace in the form of a ship. What's the second one? Well, I've said it already. Noah. Noah preached and he preached and he preached. On and on and on. That's grace. And what was his message? Unless you repent, you're doomed. Unless you repent, the judgment of God's coming upon you. You've got 120 years. You've got 100 years. You've got 80 years left. You've got 70 years. You've got 10 years, 5 years. It's coming. It's coming. Repent, repent, repent. And they'd say, coming? But there's never been any rain. You, how's, how's it going to come then? This flood that you're talking about. And Noah would say, there's going to be rain. Water is going to pour down from the sky. And they'd laugh. They'd have a good laugh. Oh, really? Noah, you're mad. And Noah might have turned to Genesis chapter 1, which, of course, he was taught by Adam and all the other people that he knew. They taught him faithfully the word of God. And he'd turn, he'd say, it's up there and it's coming down. Let's have a look. Perhaps you don't know where the water came from for Noah's flood. Perhaps you do. Let's have a look at it. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 6. Now then, what have we got? And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. At this time, there's the earth and it's covered with water. And God said, let there be a firmament. Now some people think that's dry land. It is not dry land. Dry land appeared the next day. Firmament is a word for atmosphere. We can represent it like this. We've got the earth. And that was covered with water. And the depth of water was pretty great. And God says, I want atmosphere in the middle of it. So on the surface of the earth, there was one layer of water. There it is. Right the way round. Then there was the atmosphere. Then above the earth, we had another layer of water. That's what that verse tells us about. And in between, we have the firmament or atmosphere. There it is. 
And by the way, God created the atmosphere as it is today. There are scientists trying to create life out of methane and ammonia and other atmospheres like that. I assure you, God created the atmosphere as it is today. Nitrogen, oxygen, carbon dioxide, neon, argon, and all the other rare gases that you find in it. And he made it in a split second of time as well, just like he did life, right in the centre. This belt of water right round the atmosphere was probably in the form of water vapour. I'm not going to say much about this, but that's most interesting, because one thing that water vapour does is this, it absorbs heat and it radiates it uniformly round the Earth. And I think before the flood, the climate of the Earth was very different from the climate that we find today. In fact, it was probable that every part of the Earth had exactly the same climate which is rather an interesting thought. It's uh, baffled scientists for a great deal of time as to how the mammoths, which are frozen up in Siberia, happen to be eaten, eating uh, tropical plants in their mouths. There they are, perfectly preserved in ice, and yet they've got orchids and other tropical plants in their mouth. And I think the answer is that before the flood, because of this layer of water vapour right round the Earth, that the climate of the Earth was uniform. It would have made it very easy, of course, for Noah, therefore, to have one of every type of animal inside the ark, because they'd all be living together. The polar bears would be living in the same place as the camels and whatever, whatever it was. However, I'm not going into that in detail, but there's, there's the water. And on the next day, the water that was on the surface of the earth was actually divided, and land came up, and some of the water was hidden away in underground sort of caverns beneath the oceans. I think we've got the remains of these even today, by the way, um, in the West, near the West Indies and in the Pacific. We've got very deep what are called trenches. Some of them are 35,000 feet deep. That means if you take Everest and turn it upside down, you've still got 6,000 feet to reach the bottom. And I rather imagine that these are the remains of these sort of reservoirs of water beneath the earth. So you have water right round the earth and you have water underneath the earth as well. And it was ready. What was it ready for? For judgment. And we read of this in Genesis. Oh, by the way, let's just read on that verse just to complete it. Verse 6, And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. Let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament, that's on the surface of the earth, from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. Now that's the position that we've got. And God called the firmament heaven. Or the atmosphere. There are three heavens mentioned in the Bible. I say this in passing. One is the atmosphere, one is outer space, and the third one is the throne room of God. And the Lord Jesus, when he ascended, it says he went through the heavens, went right through the atmosphere, right through the universe, and right into the presence of God the Father in the third heaven. Praise God. And we're going to do that when we're raptured, by the way. And it's not going to take light years to get there. <laughs> It's going to take just the twinkling of an eye. Praise God. Way out beyond Pluto. Way out beyond the furthest galaxy. Hallelujah. Twinkling of an eye. Why? God made it all. And can't the God that made the whole of the universe look after you, an ant, on the surface of the earth? Of course he can. If he can make sure that when you die, you zip millions of light years straight to the throne room of God, he can certainly make sure that you are well catered for down on this earth. Amen. Praise God. That's my beloved Father I'm talking about. Hallelujah. Let's have a look and see the reference to this water. Genesis chapter 7. Genesis chapter 7. 
uh, beginning verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, look how accurate that is, by the way. This is true. The same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up. Now, they're the reservoirs of water that God had over the surface of the earth. They were broken up, and, and the windows of heaven were opened. And God caused all of this water vapor around the earth to condense. Not all at once, nothing would have withstood it. But over 40 days he controlled the flow as the water fell and rain started falling because God was in control. And it says there, and the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And Noah was preaching. Noah was telling the people all about this. Noah was saying, but look, even Moses, whoops, we wouldn't have mentioned Moses, would he? Even Adam told us, that when the earth was created, there, were, there was a belt of water right around the earth. It's up there and it's going to come down. That would have been his message. And it would have been a warning of judgment coming. And he preached for 120 years faithfully. And how many converts did he get? Not one convert. Only his family was saved. Now, if we were judging Noah, we'd have thrown him out now as our visiting evangelist. We really would. <laughs> But God was with Noah. It was the evil times in which he lived that was, was the reason why so few were saved. Only his family were saved. And Noah preached faithfully. And I think it takes a man of God to preach for 120 years, having been scorned and laughed, laughed at all the time. But he was faithful. He preached and he preached and he preached. Peter tells us that in his second epistle. He preached and he preached and he preached the gospel to these people. And that's grace. God was prepared for one of his beloved children to be mocked and scorned for 120 years that the message of grace might get out. Praise his wonderful name. That is equivalent to the scorn that Jesus received before he died on the cross. And God's love is revealed in the fact that Jesus was prepared to take all the scorn every single part, because he loved us so much. There's the second. There's the second. And the flood came because not one person was saved. Well, where's the third? Where's the third great area of grace, then, that preceded the flood? Well, it wasn't through Noah this time. And it wasn't through Noah's father. It was through Noah's grandfather that, the came, that this came. And his name? Methuselah. Here it is. And Methuselah represented the grace of God as few other men have ever done before. There is a song that says, it ain't necessarily so. And I've got news for you. If it ain't necessarily so, they've missed the whole point. In fact, Methuselah died the very time God told him to die. Praise God. He, it couldn't have been one year later or one year before. It had to be exactly on time. No, he really did live 969 years. It's true. Why? It's the grace of God. I, I'm asked so often, especially when I was a school teacher, I was asked this, is it true that Methuselah lived so long? And if he did, why did he? And there's one answer. It's the grace of God. It's the grace of God. How is it the grace of God? What am I talking about? Well, every name has a meaning. In Hebrew, every single name has a meaning. Let me give you an example. Joshua, which is translated Jesus in Greek, means Savior. 
And if you met a man called Joshua, you should have felt very safe because he was going to save you. He's going to deliver you. Praise God. Joel, the prophet Joel, what's his name mean? It means Jehovah is God. Jehovah is God. I think my favorite name is Hananiah. We've seen a false prophet called Hananiah. There's also another one who was a friend, if you remember, of Daniel. And this is a name that I would choose any time at all, immediately. It just means, the Lord is gracious. Hananiah, the Lord is gracious. There's no compromise. You can't help preaching the gospel if you've got a name like that. Oh, what's your name? The Lord is gracious. <laughs> Praise God. And everywhere you go, you've got to preach the gospel immediately. Praise God. What did Methuselah mean? What did Methuselah mean? Well, it's got rather an odd meaning because it's a sentence. And it means this. And when he is dead, it shall be sent. Here's what it means. And when he is dead, it shall be sent. That's what his name means. That's Methuselah. What's it talking about? It says, when Methuselah dies, the flood's coming. When Methuselah dies, the flood is on the way. And Methuselah, starting off as a young man, gradually got older and older and older. And God made sure that every wrinkle showed. Every gray hair stood out so that people would know Methuselah's getting older. And perhaps his back bent more and more as the years went on. And it was the grace of God. Every wrinkle. Look, Father, he's got another wrinkle. Oh, that's Methuselah. When he is dead, it shall be sent. And I imagine the fathers pointing the Methuselah out to their children, saying, there's that man. When he is dead, it shall be sent. Oh, that's rubbish. Nothing's going to happen. And the little children in the street saying, I wonder, I wonder whether it is going to happen. I wonder something, whether something will happen when he dies. It's Methuselah. And did it happen? Let's have a look. Genesis chapter 5. The genealogies are very important. Now, we've got in verse 25 a statement. And Methuselah lived 187 years and begat Lamech. Here we are. Methuselah, 187, when Lamech was born. <coughs> Lamech's a young baby. Methuselah's 187. Next statement, verse 28. And Lamech lived 182 years and begat a son, and he called his name Noah. So, 182, and Noah is born. Now, Methuselah is Noah's grandfather. Therefore, if you add those two years together, that's how old Methuselah was when Noah was born. And it's 369 years old. Noah's a young baby, just out the womb. Methuselah is 369 years old. Methuselah lived to be 969 years old. How old was Noah then, when Methuselah died? Well, it's 969 minus 369, which is 600. So Noah was 600 years old, when Methuselah died, and when he is dead, it shall be sent. Let's turn back to Genesis chapter 7. And verse 11. 
in the 600th year of Noah's life. Hallelujah. Who wasn't there? Methuselah wasn't. Praise God, he just died. 600. These genealogies are so important. And what's that? It's grace. It's the grace of God. Now notice what it says. In the second month, the 17th day of the month. Now, there were 30 days in the first month, 17 days in the second, that's 47 days into the 600th year of Noah's life. There it is. They were in the ark seven days. That gave 40 days in which Methuselah died. And I reckon he died right at the beginning. That would give Noah 40 days to preach using Methuselah. And I bet Noah took the funeral service as well. And he didn't say, love your neighbor and it will all be all right. Or go around doing good and everything will be fine. He said, when he's dead, it shall be sent. And folks, he's dead. And it's coming. That's the message. What's that? It's grace. It's the grace of God revealed. Hallelujah. And Methuselah stands in our Bible as a testimony to grace before judgment. A great man of God. Three, three forms of grace. One, the ark. Two, Noah. Three, Methuselah. Praise God. And they're all important. Three major outreaches that occurred. Praise God. Of course, directly after, this, uh, after the flood, um, God said, I'll never ever flood the earth again. And he gave us a sign, the rainbow. After the flood, rain started falling. And the rainbow is caused as light uh, goes through raindrops and comes out. Now, it couldn't have been a rainbow before the flood. There was no rain. After the flood, perfect. And to me, a rainbow always represents the grace of God. Whenever I see it, doesn't it to every Christian? Surely it does. I've seen them so often and been encouraged. A rainbow over a particular place. And you know, God's there. This is my covenant. Remember, I'm not going to flood the earth with water ever again. It's fire next time. Let's have a look at Peter. 2 Peter, chapter 3, 1 to 9. <clears throat> 2 Peter 3, 1 to 9. 2 Peter 3, 1 to 9. This is one of the greatest stories of grace in the whole, uh, the whole of the Old Testament. Praise God. God's grace before his judgment. 1 to 9. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Saviour, knowing this first, that there shall come in these last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and we're living in them now, and there they are, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Jesus is coming, is he? Huh. Rubbish. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come 
to repentance. Now, there's Peter's view of the flood. Now, just to complete the flood, I just want to list six things that are typical of Christ and our position in Christ in relation to the ark. Now, I, I think it's good for your notes that you get these down as they come in order. Number one, let's deal with these. The ark was God's appointed means of saving the human race. The ark was God's appointed means of saving the human race. He was the one that designed it. He knew how big to make it. He knew how strong it had to be. The analogy for us is that Christ is the appointed means of salvation for man. Christ is the appointed means of salvation for man. The ark was God's appointed means of saving the human race. Christ is the appointed means for saving man. Number two, the ark was the only means of saving the human race. They had water cascading from above, they had water cascading from beneath, and no boat would have been able to match up to the forces that were leashed and unleashed on the earth at that time, these tidal waves. The ark was the only one that could. The ark was the only means of saving human beings. So there is salvation in none other but in the Lord Jesus Christ. As Acts 4 Verse 12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Christ is the only means. Number three, the ark took the beating. The ark took the beating. All the waters cascading, all the rocks being picked up, all the trees being hurled. The ark took them all, and the ones inside didn't take anything. Christ took the beating for us on the cross of Calvary. Christ was the one who was scourged when I deserved to be scourged. Christ was the one that came within an inch of his life through the beatings and the spitting and the slapping and then had his life taken from him because he gave it on the cross of Calvary. I should have been there, but he took the beating for me. Praise his wonderful name. Number four, <clears throat> entrance into the ark was voluntary. They couldn't force anyone to get in there. Oh, Noah would have done it if he could, but they couldn't. The people had free will and they chose not to come in. And so you can't force anyone to accept Christ. It is only when a man willingly lays down his life and gives his heart to the Lord that he becomes a Christian and is saved. Praise God. Number five, <clears throat> entrance into the ark was free. No tickets, no payment as you got in. And salvation is by grace and it's free in Christ. You can't pay for it, you can't earn it, and you don't deserve it. For by grace are you saved, not of works lest any man should boast. And number six, and perhaps the most important of all, it was God that shut the door, and it was God that looked after the ark during the time that it was floating. 
Praise God. It was God that did it. Noah couldn't. He couldn't get outside. He was stuck inside. It was only God that could do it. And that's why it says in Peter, we are kept by the power of God. We who are in Christ are eternally secure, kept by his power, because he's shut us in. Praise God. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Saviour, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. And that sums up exactly the fact that it's with him that our future is entrusted and he cannot fail. Therefore your future is absolutely laid out and is clear. You are going to heaven, praise God, because you are kept by his power. Just want to read one last scripture before we close. Uh, 2 Peter and chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2 beginning verse 4 down to verse 9. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to Tartarus, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old word, world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, there it is, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, which we dealt with last week, into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ex example, that is, unto those that after should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them, in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. May we realize that in Christ there is no judgment, but out of Christ judgment still remains. There is today a day of grace, but the day of judgment is coming directly afterwards. Receive Christ now in the day of grace. When the day of judgment comes, it is too late. May the Lord... Use his word to bring many to him in this day of grace. And may they not harden their hearts as they did in the time of Noah, but may they realize that the ark is open, that God is still allowing people to come to him. Wretched sinners that they are, though they deserve all the judgments that God can bring upon them, the Holy Spirit is striving with man still. Praise his name. Hallelujah.